hot and bothered. Sometimes it's family, sometimes it's friends, sometimes it's yourself. Happy Thanksgiving. I hope that this week uh, blesses you, even though through COVID you might have smaller numbers or you might be dealing with different kinds of pain and emotions that you're going through, maybe even loss of family members. Just know that we at Bridgeway love you and we're praying for you. Speaking of prayer, I'm going to say one now and we're going to launch into part two of a five week series called Overwhelmed embracing the emotional part of me. We go through a range of emotions and it spells out the word range. Last week, regret. Today, anger. Next week, nervousness. After that, grief. All right, and we're just gonna keep going till we get to the E, which is empathy. And then after that, we move into the Christmas season and that's when we'll also receive our special gifts for our brand new future fitting of the building. I sure hope that you'll be praying about the gift that you wanna give to the Lord and to this ministry. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you help us to embrace the emotional part of us while at the same time uh, controlling our emotions so that they don't go out of control and hurt our relationship with you, with others, and even with ourselves. For it is in Jesus' name that we commit today's sermon. Together, everyone said with me, amen and amen. Righteous indignation. Have you ever heard that term before? And when you hear the phrase righteous indignation, is there a scripture or a Bible story or passage that you immediately think about? I know it is for me and probably many of you right now, if you were to say it in the chat or if you were to speak to someone around you, righteous indignation, where would I find that in the scripture? What story would that be? And I bet you many of you are thinking about, yep, Jesus in the temple when he overturns the tables, right? We find this story in Matthew chapter 21 and also in Mark and in Luke. Out of the four gospels, it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 19. And let me read the story to you from verses 12 to 17. This is what it says from the New International Version. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the temples of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were, here it is, indignant. Do you hear these children saying what they're saying, what these children are saying? They asked him, yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? And he quotes from Psalm 8, 2, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth 
your praise. So Jesus hears all of the praise from the children. He quotes and hearkens back to Psalm 8-2. And for those of you who are wondering what passages could be used to talk about maybe children and infants in the presence of the Lord, here you find it, Psalm 8-2, quoted by Jesus in Matthew 21. From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Verse 17, and he left them and went out of the city of Bethany where he spent the night. So Matthew tells us this story of Jesus going into the temple. He sees all kinds of uh, commercial merchandising going on. He flips the tables and then uh, he begins healing people and people begin praising him. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law are very upset Mark mentions the same story because they're all there, but they're writing from their perspective. And this is what Mark says in chapter 11. He says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, verse 16, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts, verse 17. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house? House will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What Jesus is doing is he's taking two Old Testament passages, one that says a house of prayer from Isaiah 57 for all nations, and one from Jeremiah 7:11, which says, You've made my house a den of thieves or a den of robbers. It then goes on to say in verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Why? Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So it was the chief priests and it was the teachers of the law who were, listen, indignant, looking for a way to kill him. They feared him, the text says. Everyone else was praising him for his works and his words. Well, remember I said it was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. How does Luke see this? We'll pick it up at verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It was, it is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you made it into a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were what? Trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it. Why? Because all the people hung on his words. Isn't it interesting that Jesus goes into the temple, people are praising him, he's healing people, but he sees that the merchandising has gone way beyond ministry. He flips over the tables and in Matthew, it says that he was doing wonderful things and that the chief priests and the teachers were indignant. Notice that the text never identifies Jesus as indignant. When we hear the phrase righteous indignation, I mean, actually, it doesn't say in the text that Jesus was indignant at all. So what is righteous indignation? I mean, maybe it was the overturning of tables and that action showed that he was upset. 
Maybe it's because of an unjust system, which harkens back to Jeremiah 7, where Jesus actually called them, uh, you know, a den of robbers. And it was an unjust system because if you went back to Jeremiah 7, it talks about uh, oppressing the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, and shedding innocent blood. And he goes on to say in verse 11 of Jeremiah 7, he has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But righteous indignation? I actually don't know any scripture that uses those two phrases, righteous indignation. I think what we see in this passage is unrighteous indignation. Unrighteous indignation, which means to be angry and upset when someone is doing what is right. When someone is doing what is good. When someone is doing what is just, or when someone is doing what Matthew called in Matthew 21, 15, describing Jesus doing wonderful things. So check it out. Doing what is right, good, and wonderful can lead to unrighteous indignation. When you do what God wants you to do, when you are doing the right thing, when you are saying the right thing, when you are living the right way, don't think that the world's going to applaud you. Actually, the religious leaders of the day, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, and those who were the leaders and those who were in authority actually became unrighteously indignant, and they even tried to kill Jesus because they feared Jesus. What Jesus was doing when he came into the temple is he was returning to the temple, the purpose for which the temple was supposed to be built, the purpose for which church is supposed to happen. What was he doing? He was healing people. It says that the blind and the lame came and he healed them. Children was, were praising him. And he says this house should be a house of prayer for all ethnic groups and for all nations. So imagine the triumphal entry, because that's what's happening here. This is the whole Palm Sunday thing and, and all the people flooding in Jerusalem and Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives and he goes into the temple with all this activity going on. He overturns the tables and then after that, he, he declares that his house should be a house of prayer for all ethnic groups and then people who are lame and blind, he begins to heal them and then on top of that, children all over are praising him saying, Hosea, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Matthew calls these wonderful things. And yet the leaders of the day are indignant. The word described in Matthew 21. Hmm. Is it possible that those who are in power, who have institutionalized the merchandising of ministry are upset because Jesus is coming in and he's repurposing and he's telling his people what the true purpose of faith is and what the temple is supposed to be about. I mean, why would they be so indignant because people were being healed? Why would they be so indignant because people were saying good things about Jesus? Why would these religious leaders be indignant because Jesus was calling for a house of prayer? Maybe it's because they were losing power. They were losing influence. They were losing control. You see, whenever you come up against a corrupt system, 
Whenever you try to make something right that has gotten distracted and lost its way, those who are benefiting from that particular power system are not going to simply let go of the power and feel good about it. For those who speak against that which is, has been institutionalized, even if it's evil, in order to be the guardians of that kind of institutionality, the only thing they can think about is, is killing and assassinating and somehow getting rid of the very ones who are trying to right the wrongs. The very ones who are saying, no, this is what the church should be about. It should be about healing the blind and the lame and feeding the poor and being there for the oppressed. It should be about looking after the least of these. But when you began to refocus the church on what it's supposed to be focused on, a house of prayer, not just for black people or white people or Asians, Hispanics or indigenous, male or female, but the church is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. As soon as you began to move toward what God's heart is for the church, the devil himself will become angry and begin coming after the very people who are trying to do a ministry that is authentic. So understand that there's no person more angry on the face of the planet than the devil himself. Maybe this is why Jesus uses the term the den of thieves. Whenever you think about a den in scripture, think about, remember Daniel and the what? Lion's den. And we know lions in the scriptures can sometimes mean the devil. Like in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and sober and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Daniel was in power, but he was going to stand up and stand out for God. And those who were in power were threatened. So they threw him in the lion's den. Here Jesus is saying, you're turning my house into a den of robbers or thieves. Well, who's also known as a thief? John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The angriest person in the room is not your spouse or your friend your coworker, or your relative, the angriest person in the room is the devil when you're trying to do the Lord's work. And whenever we try to accomplish the true purposes of God, you are making the devil angrier and angrier. And those who want to keep in power and keep the game of oppressing others into a convoluted and corrupt system, when those purposes are being challenged, people get angry and they align themselves with evil and the devil and they will lash out at you for promoting the purposes of Jesus. Healing, praising, praying. So here's a question. What do you do when angry people come your way. You know, I did a three-week series right before COVID kicked off, and we uh, began to close in-person services, and that was called The Age of Rage. I'm sure you can still find that on our YouTube and our Facebook pages. But what happens when anger comes your way? Maybe you don't even deserve it, but people are mad at you because of what you are about. How do you deal with your own anger and how can you not be overwhelmed 
by the anger of others or even by your own anger. What I'm going to do in the balance of my message is I'm going to give you five ways to keep from being overwhelmed by anger. Five ways to keep from being overwhelmed by anger. Is anybody interested in this? Have you ever had anger overwhelm you? Your frustration turned into to bitterness. Your hurt turned into anger. Your, your anger turned into resentment. And you don't even know how to deal with it because it's eating you up from the inside out. You walk into your home and get into your car and anger so thick that you actually smell it. How can we not be overcome by that kind of anger? Let me give you five ways to keep yourself from being overwhelmed by anger. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, lower the temperature. Lower the temperature. It says in Proverbs 15, one, that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Instead of stirring anger up, lower the temperature. Do your best to de-escalate the situation, which may mean you have to de-escalate yourself. And one word to de-escalate yourself is this, breathe, breathe. Take three deep breaths and count backwards from 10. You don't have to do it out loud, it helps, but if people are around, you'll look kind of weird, so don't do that. But just take three deep breaths and count down from 10, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Doing it backwards makes you think differently. Taking three deep breaths begins to change you physiologically. And so sometimes what you have to do is to lower the temperature in your own spirit. Here's the second thing to do. If you can't lower your temperature, leave the situation. It actually says in these passages, all of them, but in Matthew 21, 17 about Jesus, and he left them. (laughs) You know, they're trying to kill him. They fear him. They're angry at him. And it says, and he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So sometimes the best thing you can do is not just breathe, but leave. You try to lower the temperature with breathing, but sometimes what you have to do is to de-escalate it completely is you have to leave. Now, one of the ways to leave is not to be cursing on your way out. One of the ways to leave is not to be calling people names on the way out. One of the best ways to leave is to say, you know what? I need to exit this situation before I say or do something I shouldn't. I'm ready to re-engage later, but I need to take a break and just announce what you're doing and then take a break. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus said, okay, we're all done here and I'm leaving. That's not running. That is wisdom and saying, I don't need to stay in this situation any longer. We're talking about five ways to keep you from being overwhelmed by anger. Lower the temperature, leave the situation. Here's something that's going to be kind of cool for some of you. Lay down and rest. <laughs> it actually says that Jesus left them and he went out of the city to Bethany in verse 17 and he went and spent the night. He went to sleep. 
Now, at first, you may think that this is just the way that all depressed people handle their issues, but the reality is it's not simply about being depressed. It's about being restored. And sometimes it's better to sleep on it before you slip on it. You see, you, if you sleep on it, you may not slip on it, but if you don't get the rest that you need, especially when you are on fire and hot, you may slip and say things that you will regret later or do things that you will regret later. So take a beat. Don't slip and do the wrong thing. Take a beat. Lay down. Go to sleep. <laughs> now you might say, is this biblical? Well, actually it is. In Ephesians 4, 26, it says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry, which means that you need to, within a timely fashion, deal with whatever it is that's, uh, that is angering you or in a relationship with someone else. But interestingly enough, that verse in Ephesians 4.26 is actually a reference from Psalm 4.4. So what does Psalm 4.4 say? Let me tell you. It says, in your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. In other words, the bed is that private place that you can go and you can search your heart, and you can be silent, and you can reflect on what really happened, you can talk to God. In your anger, don't sin, but now that you're at your bed, just kind of reflect on everything, and go to sleep. Colin Powell says he always goes to bed before making a major decision. Even if it's a great opportunity today, he's going to go sleep on it before he makes a major decision. Have you ever slept on something and you wake up the next day and you actually have a, a more enhanced understanding of what you were about to say or do? Like maybe you'd make a decision not to do it. Maybe you make a decision to do it, but you're going to do it in a way that is, is, is more polished. I mean, once you get a fresh uh, night of sleep and once you've thought about something, maybe you will wake up not as angry as you went to bed. Now listen, some of you go to bed angry and you wake up angry, okay? That's because you didn't do what Psalm 4.4 says. It says, in your anger, do not sin. When you are in your bed, search your hearts and be silent. That's prayer, that's reflection. That's asking God, God, what do you think about this? We said, lower the temperature, leave the situation if you must, lay down and rest. Here's the fourth of five, and get this one now. Learn to fight fair. Learn to fight fair. You see, what happens is many people have never been taught how to fight fair. So they fight based on how they were raised. They fight based on what they've seen. If they've seen their parents uh, abandon uh, the situation, then that's what they do. If they see their parents screaming in a situation, that's what they do. If they see guilt-ridden conversations, that's what they do. And so sometimes the only training we get to fighting is what we see. But how if what we see is not the healthiest way to deal with how relationships are supposed to work? If you were to fight in a boxing match, you would train. You know, if you were to fight in any other way, training is important, but no one gives us the, oftentimes many people don't give us the, uh, the, the techniques necessary to fight. So let me give you a few. Number one, attack the problem, not the person. 
attack the problem, not the person. See, what happens is when we get into a fight, oftentimes we leave the problem and we let the person have it. You didn't take the trash out again because you're irresponsible. You're not listening to me. Why can't you remember taking out the trash? Look what just happened. We moved from the problem taking out the trash to the person. You're irresponsible. You see, and what we often shift from whatever the issue is to the person. Part of fighting fair is staying focused on the problem. Advance the cause without assassinating the character. So why is the trash not being taken out this week? Ask the question, don't assume, and have the conversation. But part of fighting fair is attacking the problem, not the person, and advancing the cause without assassinating the character. Here's another technique that may be helpful to you. Avoid absolute language like always and never. You always forget to take out the trash. You never remember to take out the trash. Well, yeah, I took it out three weeks ago. (laughs) So always and never are absolute words that oftentimes cause people to react to that instead of the problem at hand. So just delete always and never out of your vocabulary when you are arguing or when you are angry. Substitute them with words like often or almost always, (laughs) but often is a good one. Now, learning how to fight fair is important and taking these techniques and trying to use them will be helpful. The, The last thing I'll say, and I mentioned it earlier, but ask instead of assume. Ask instead of assume, because maybe the trash wasn't taken out this week because, yeah, I may have forgotten about it, or B, I plan to take it out early in the morning instead of late at night, or maybe it was because of some other reason that was no good reason at all, and I'm just trying to make it up. But the bottom line is to ask instead of assume, (laughs) okay? Now, let me give you the fifth and final way to try to ensure that anger is not overwhelming you And that is this one, and it's a very important one. You ready? Let God fight for you. Let God fight for you and stay in praise. You know, God is a better fighter than you and me. And there's an Old Testament passage that talks about King Jehoshaphat. And King Jehoshaphat faced a a very vast army that he knew he could not beat. But he prayed to God and he said in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12, for we have no power to fight this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Have you ever been to that place? God, I don't have the power. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. The word of the Lord came to Jehoshaphat, and this is what the Lord said in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the vast army. Here it is. For the battle is not yours, but God's. You see, some of us are trying to fight a battle that's not ours. God, this one's yours. You know, if I'm going to keep myself from being overwhelmed by my own anger, I've got to realize that there are times when I've got to let God fight for me. And not just let him fight for me, but praise him because he is. In fact, he said in that same chapter, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17, you will not have to fight this battle. 
Take up your position, stand firm, and look, see the deliverance of the Lord. See the deliverance the Lord will give you. Sometimes you just have to show up and realize that God is going to step in and fight your battles, and you're only there to witness the deliverance of the Lord. God is calling you to be a witness Sometimes we feel like God is only calling us to be a warrior. Yeah, you might be a warrior, but when you show up, you're not the one that actually has to fight because the battle's not yours. And God wants you to show up as a warrior so you can see him fight your battles for you and be a witness on the front lines of what God can do. Let the Lord fight some of your battles for you and you stay in praise like Jehoshaphat in verse 18. Notice what it says. After he heard that, Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. Verse 19, then some of the Levites, you know what they did? They stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel with very loud voices. I love it what it says in the last couple of verses in verses 20 through 22. It says, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. Verse 21, after consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And as they began to sing and praise Check this out. The Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. (laughs) I'm here to tell somebody today that you need to stop fighting battles that aren't yours to fight. You need to stand firm. You need to stay in praise. And Jehoshaphat and his people ended up praising God before the battle even began. And it says that God conducted a divine ambush for those that were trying to invade. Listen, the enemy's always trying to invade in your life. People sometimes are used as pawns of the enemy to invade your life. Emotions gone wrong can sometimes cause you to want to even sin. But if you will go on your bed to your bedroom and ask God for help, And if you will let the Lord fight your battles, he will conduct a divine ambush where you won't even have to fight. All you'll have to do is say, praise you, God, for how you came through. And you and I can be reminded of what it says in Isaiah 55, 17. And that is this. That no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. Don't let anger get the best of you. Remember, the devil is the one who's angriest of all. But the scripture teaches us ways to deal with anger so we're not overwhelmed. Because James says that the anger that we express is not necessarily that which pleases God. So be angry if you have to, but do not sin. And remember, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. You can do this because God will fight your battle.